Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, as promised, we're turning back to British politics and the extraordinary appointment of David Cameron, Lord Cameron, as Foreign Secretary. And the question we're going to ask is, what was David Cameron trying to achieve in foreign policy when he was Prime Minister? And why had it pretty much all unravelled by the time that he left office in 2016? Our right trusty and well-beloved councillor, David William Donald Cameron, to the state degree, style, dignity, title and honour of Baron Cameron of Chipping Norton. Here he is, our new Prime Minister. Compared with a decade ago, this country is more open at home and more compassionate abroad. Corporation tax cut, the jobs tax axed, police targets smashed, immigration capped. Look what we've done in five months. Just imagine what we can do in five years. issue of Afghanistan is the most important foreign policy issue, uh, the most important national security issue uh, for my country. We've trained up an Afghan national army and an Afghan national police force that are capable of delivering the basic security this country needs. I'm not arguing we should arm the rebels. I'm not making any of those arguments. Is it in Britain's national interest to maintain an international taboo about the use of chemical weapons on the battlefield? My argument is yes, it is. Well, back to tonight's main news now. And when the Commons voted against joining military action against Syria, it was more than a blow for David Cameron. But I'm So you don't have any regrets? I have huge regrets. It's haunting you, would you say that? Yeah, of course. Okay, Helen, so with David Cameron, we've got so much to talk about. I think there are a number of issues we want to focus on. We're going to, for the listeners, we're going to touch on foreign policy here rather than domestic policy. Obviously, domestic policy will will have an effect, but we're going to focus mainly on foreign policy. So there is Europe, there's Turkey. We're going to cover defence, the Middle East and Afghanistan in one section and China. And as you said in the introduction, Helen, what is so remarkable is that really it's hard to make the, the argument that they weren't all failures, foreign policy failures. And that, that is a remarkable record in a way. I think there's something quite interesting to talk about in regard to Israel, but we'll save that for the for the second half of this episode. Let's start with Europe. I mean, I was spending the weekend rereading 
his biography and uh, the biography written by uh, James Hanning and Francis Elliott about Cameron's early life, mostly focused on his time before he becomes prime minister. And I think what struck me was how much of an instinctive Eurosceptic David Cameron was. At university, you know, he holds a party in 1987 in his room for Mrs. Thatcher's election victory. He's there in government in Black Wednesday when we crash out. He's writing remarks for his boss, Norman Lamont, afterwards, which there's a certain irony here. Cameron writes this line that he gets his boss to say, no one would die for Europe. And this is actually something that Number 10 had wanted stripped out of Lamont's speech, but Cameron has sort of urged him on. And Lamont was actually much more sceptical of Europe, obviously, than John Major and We'd come to see just quite how sceptical he was later on. And there's a certain irony there about how, how David Cameron came back into government with Suella Braverman doing something very similar to Rishi Sunak all those years later. But anyway, I mean, there's just this sense of David Cameron, just a really instinctive sceptic. And you see this all the way up until his premiership. You know, he, he wins a nom- uh, the Conservative nomination to become MP because there's a sort of sceptical movement led by Dan Hanan and others who are painting people like Andrew Mitchell as far too federalist. And so Cameron is able to become the candidate. He then becomes leader, making a pledge, matching a pledge by Liam Fox that the Tory party would leave the European People's Party, the EPP grouping in Parliament led by Merkel. So this is this recurring theme of David Cameron, that he's not some sort of pro-European, he's very instinctively sceptical. Yeah, I think that it's not really possible to understand uh, David Cameron's premiership and the way that it ends in defeat in the Brexit referendum without seeing how much he sets that outcome up himself. Yeah, yeah. And the context, I think, in which that sort of instinctive scepticism, as you've described it, Tom really comes to have a problem that he doesn't know what to do with really to to deal with is over the the Lisbon treaty right yeah because by the time that the the Lisbon treaty is agreed and it's 2008 there's the question of how it's going to be ratified i think we've discussed this in a different context in earlier episodes and Gordon Brown's government is hampered politically by the fact that Blair had promised a referendum on the constitutional mm-hmm. treaty but brown knows perfectly well that he's first of all going to be extraordinarily unpopular with other european union governments if he were to have a referendum and with the french with sarkozy in particular but also the chances are that it would be go down yeah and so he can't do that so he has parliamentary ratification in the days in which the labor government is it's not quite at its end but let's just call it the twilight yeah. days of that labor government and Cameron's position is not only that 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 means of ratification is democratically unacceptable but is actually outright substantive opposition to the Lisbon treaty itself it's not just making an argument that says the treaty will be fine as long as we have a referendum it's the treaty is taking away powers from Westminster that belong still at Westminster and then he gets obviously in the internal like party struggle as to like well what do you do then if the treaty is ratified by mm. the time the Conservatives come to office? And there's a part of the party, obviously the hardest Eurosceptic part of the party, that just says, well, we'll effectively repudiate it. Yeah. And Cameron 
obviously doesn't want to do that, but he's looking for fixes. And his fix is to promise in the 2010 Conservative Manifesto that the government led by him will renegotiate some of those powers that went with Lisbon back to Westminster. And right from the start, I mean, he hasn't got any idea how that is going to be achieved. Yeah. His hope is that there will be a new EU treaty, yeah. probably generated by the problems of the euro zone, and that as part of that, he will be able to negotiate these powers, which would effectively be more opt-outs for Britain. But there's no precedent in any of the EU history for anything like that. For powers and, flowing backwards. For powers flowing backwards. No. It's certainly not like unilateral, retrospective opt-outs. No, and we'd been – the history of Britain's relationship with Europe, Helen, is one of acting as a break, perhaps, on integration. I mean, this was, in, in some senses, Mrs. Thatcher's – certainly the latter half of her – Premiership, but also bits of the start, but not acting somehow as a as a flipping it into reverse and being able no. to withdraw back. You can get opt outs around treaties. Yeah, that's clear. You could get opt outs if you didn't ratify a treaty and put pressure on the European Union because they needed you to ratify the treaty. I mm. mean, that's Denmark's story back in nineteen ninety two more complicated perhaps in relation to Ireland. But once the ratifications actually happened of a treaty, the idea that it's then going to be undone yeah. by an incoming government. Now, you could say that that's a, a flaw of the way in which the EU is set up treaty-wise. You might say that it's a reason why treaties should be subject to referendums so that they more clearly bind governments yeah. of the other party when they come into office in a in, in a member state but it doesn't change the fact that that was the reality of the way in which the the eu was constructed so there was something that was just like hopelessly ambitious yeah in what he was trying to do and then i think the other commitment he made that the liberal democrats accepted in government of saying if there is a new treaty there has to be a referendum on it if it pertains to more powers going to brussels so to speak is that that made it really very problematic for any European Union leader, not least obviously Merkel, to contemplate having another EU treaty. I was going to say this. It's not just that it's like hopeless ambition. It's a failure to understand what the European Union is and always has been. You know, it, right, the very first line, I think, in the Treaty of Rome talks about ever closer union. You know, he tries the, to get an opt out from that, remember, when he does his renegotiations and, in 2016. Yeah, and, and he actually does as well, I think. And there are some uh, British federalists that I've spoken to who say, Actually, that was quite an achievement, ironically, and would have, in their view, gone some way to destroying the European Union because you, you can't have a European Union without ever closer union. That, that is its purpose. I mean, I think that's quite a fascinating topic about how successful his, his renegotiation was at the end. But there is a misunderstanding from the start. And I, I am interested in this concept of, well, once you make the pledge, you make your job harder or, or if not impossible i mean there's one thing denmark or ireland having referendums on treaty changes presumably they can be bought off in some ways but for the uk to have a, a this constant threat that nothing can happen in europe without the, this guillotine falling i mean that is a a serious threat to the very sort of existence of this goal to have ever closer union but also it is just in terms of the practical circumstances of the time and you can see that very much in terms of what happens at that summit in december 2011 in brussels where he tries to veto yeah the eu treaty that merkel's pushing what is the fiscal compact treaty so that's a set of fiscal rules really for eurozone states but it was done under 
originally been proposed as an EU treaty. And Cameron says, well, unless we get what we want as protections for the city, we're not agreeing to this treaty. So they just say, well, we'll do it outside yep. the straightforward treaty format. We'll find another way of doing it. So he's brushed aside as irrelevant. And then I think because he can't now see really a route to having a referendum on a treaty, then he has to move further and say in the January 2013 Bloomberg speech, when we have the chance as a Tory majority government, we will have an in-out referendum and it will be preceded by this renegotiation. So he's still got this idea that he can meaningfully reset the terms of British membership and then re-legitimate it. Yeah. And that's where that's where he's ended up. And I think what we can see, though, is that when he actually goes about trying to do the renegotiations, he can either get symbolic things like this supposed opt-out from ever closer union, but either it's serious and then it puts a whole EU in question or it's just a symbolic yeah. gesture to him. He can't get what actually would make any difference in terms of winning a referendum, which would be any changes on freedom of movement. Yeah, he gets something, doesn't he, on on welfare, mm. if, if, if I remember correctly, which is... He gets uh, an emergency break. Well, I think I wouldn't use that word for it because that's what he actually wants. Well, that's what he declared, declared that he wants. But is is that it's it's some restrictions on the, what benefits can be claimed by people coming at for four years that could be turned into eight from from memory. Yeah, it was. And but again, he's selling something that he can't deliver. Mm. I mean, and this is this is part of the problem from the beginning. I mean, just on this, how much do you think? looking back at his career and the fact that he is constantly making pledges to succeed in his career. So he's made them to become the conservative candidate in in the safe seat that he's now, you know, baron of. He's successfully done that. And that is, you know, that he, that he is a skeptic. He has to prove that he's a skeptic to get the nomination. I think he writes about this in these Guardian columns that he that he penned just before he became an MP. They're really interesting. If you haven't ever read them, go back and give them a read. But he talks about having to prove that he's a skeptic there. Then he has to make pledges to become leader. And every time he's succeeding. So, I mean, in a way, I can understand why he thinks, well, I'll just, do, I'll just keep doing it and I'll, and I'll keep succeeding. But that's just British politics and the not even British politics. It's just like the Conservative Party. It's not you know, the real European political world and i think the other thing that we should bring in here is the turkey question yeah because i think it's another um illustration of how he commits himself to things that he doesn't understand the consequences of what that he's doing and what is true very early on in his premiership is that he wants to both uh improve britain's commercial relations with Turkey. So if there's a kind of like mercantile aspect, if you like, to Cameron's foreign policy. He's clear, he's clear about that in his book. Yeah, it, it, it is like we need to do more business with Turkey. We need to do more business with China. We need to do more business with India. We need to do more business with the Gulf kingdoms. It's it's kind of like a foreign policy for, for British business with what might be outside the European Union, actually, yeah. or even with the um, United States. And at the same time, he wants to support Turkey's ambitions of being an alternative energy hub, particularly for gas coming, say, from Azerbaijan into Europe. What's the, what's the reason for that? Altern well, an alternative to Russia. Right, yeah. So that's the way that Erdogan's been pushing like Turkish policy, uh, both, I would say, in straightforward foreign policy terms, but also in terms of trying to use that 
to uh, secure European Union accession for Turkey. And and Cameron declares that he's the strongest support, you know, pretty yeah. much in coming to office, he's the strongest supporter of Turkey joining the European Union. He says it makes him very angry that there's this, this opposition yeah. um, to it. And then when it comes to the referendum, when he realises that supporting Turkish accession to the European Union is a liability for yeah. winning the referendum and that the Leave campaign are really using that issue against them. He just sort of says, oh, well, who's, you know, we can't possibly think that Turkey will be in the uh, <laughs> European Union before the year 3000. And the yeah. people in Erdogan's office back in you know, Ankara are just like absolutely dismayed because they've completely, he's completely thrown them under a bus because yeah. that is actually being clearly, I mean, you might say it's one of the clearer foreign policy objectives that that Cameron had had from from the, from the very beginning. I think his first trip, if I remember, it's one rightly, of his certainly one of the first few trips. Yeah, he goes to Turkey and India, and it's and I think this is a really sort of telling moment about David Cameron because he goes to Turkey and then to India. And in the process, he offends uh, British allies. So he offends Israel on his trip to Turkey because he talks about Gaza being a, a prison. And then he goes to India and says Pakistan exports terror around the world. And he, he has weeks of trying to sort of mend these relationships after that particular trip, which actually I, I was on. I, I remember it. But it's David Cameron, in a way, just looking at an issue and saying, all right, well, I've solved the, the problem here. I've solved the question. There's, there is an obvious answer here. It's we need a relationship with India because they're ever richer, growing part of the world. It's obvious. We need a relationship with Turkey. That's completely obvious as well. And we need one with China. And we'll see how each of those cause real problems for him. And he, he writes about it in the book. He says, the problem of Tony Blair's foreign policy, which was he, that it was too focused on Europe and the United States, and it ignored the rest of the world. And there's this great market that we can go and exploit. And he talks about how British embassies in all of these places in the world should be like shops, you know, that just go and sell Britain and British business. And that this is the way to make Britain prosper. And that's what his foreign policy is to start with. And it kind of, it just, well, we'll see, it completely unravels. Well, I think the example we might pick out from, from all that is a relationship between the Turkey hmm. question and the EU referendum yes, yeah. question. Because in the referendum lock treaty, as it was called in 2011, it only guaranteed a referendum in any in regard to any treaty that actually shifted powers, so away from the, the from Britain or any other member state to the European Union mm -hmm. level, it didn't say there would be a referendum on the accession of any country, yeah. new country to the European Union. Now there were other European Union countries. I think France would be included in this, and certainly perhaps Austria, where there were effectively guarantees uh, on referendums on accession, and they clearly were directed at the Turkey. Yeah, um, yeah, question very much so. And Cameron's in putting the referendum lock in place and effectively excluding the Turkey question from it. it he can't really be surprised when it comes that comes and, and blows up. For yeah, it's him remarkably in, cynical in, in, in two thousand and sixteen, and then he effectively has to disown what he's done and antagonise the Turkish government um, over it. Not to see that there was a tension between the whole. We need to reset. European Union membership for the United Kingdom and that must involve a referendum in one form or another and what he was doing with the Turkey question. Not to see that these would be in collision yeah. just shows a, a real significant lack of, of foresight really about um, the, the consequences of his own, own decisions. 
And I think the same thing, if we shift to defence, can be seen here too, because they come in, they have a strategic defence review in 2010. Mm -hmm. The fiscal context in which that's happening is obviously the commitment to fiscal austerity, to reducing public um, expenditure. And he's not prepared to leave defence out of austerity. The two areas of expenditure that he protects is health and education. Yeah. It's not defence. I think defence end up with it. It's just under 8%, isn't it? I mean, it's not anywhere near the biggest cuts, but they're still cut. They're still sizable, yeah. They're still sizable cuts. And they go across the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. And this is despite the fact in the manifesto there's a lot of criticism about of Labour for not spending enough money yeah. uh, on defence. Well, he actively rejects Lord Richards, who was the advising him, and he was asking for the army to be protected and cuts to be made to the Navy and the Air Force, and so that you have this kind of fighting force that can be deployed effectively alongside the Americans. Mm. That's the goal. And you still see this as an aspiration for some thinkers, strategic thinkers, who think that's the best way to exert British influence. And Cameron says no rejects that and says it should be across the board and we should maintain a sort of US-style force on a much smaller scale with a, with a capabilities in Navy and the Air Force and, and the Army. Yeah, and the difficulty is, though, that this runs into 2011 and the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. And when it gets to what the uprising in Libya against Gaddafi, yeah. then Cameron, along with the French, want to use military force yes yeah and they get obama support for that but we as can't we've dis- do it alone but as we've discussed obama wants actually this to be something that the british and the french take primary mm-hmm. responsibility for uh, and they can't because it's not just the british that have cut back expenditure in response to essentially the sovereign debt aspects let's call it of the uh, of the the crash and the pressure for fiscal um, austerity it's the it's the French too. In fact, it's a whole cross-the-board European response yeah. to 2008 is to say, well, we need to spend less money on defence. I think this one of the American advisors says it's, it, that this is a moment of demilitarizing yeah. Europe. It happens cor- in the late of 2008. So, yeah. And yet they're the British and the French saying, oh, but we need to be really strong in terms of removing Gaddafi from power. Um, Obama's furious at this, isn't he? And, and that comes out in, I mean, I, th- I think this comes out in Obama's book, but also in, in Cameron's book, where Obama is not just reticent, but once he has been sort of forced into it, he's quite grumpy with Cameron and Sarkozy at the time and saying to them, look, you're going to get some missiles. We'll, you know, we'll do what we have to do. And then it's up to you guys. And then he's actually drawn in because Cameron and Sarkozy can't take it on afterwards. And they know that. And there is a moment in in Cameron's book where he talks about Obama being really quite furious with them directly on this video call where there's the three of them on the screen. And Obama says to them, I can't, I won't be able to trust you guys again in the same way and is angry with them. And I mean, you can, it's understandable as well, isn't it? That Cameron and Sarkozy have basically sold him a pup here and, you know, he is forced to take on, I mean, I think that's being over, slightly over generous to, to Obama. You know, he should figure, he should know what the, what the situation is. You know, he understands the, the British and the French capabilities here. But there is something absurd about that whole situation. And then it goes on though with, with Syria too. I mean, this case, not in terms of proposing British 
troops being um, in, involved in Syria in, in any way, but this time pushing quite hard for arming the Syrian rebels, the, the, the opposition to uh, Assad, and working with, by 2000, somewhere point, second half of 2012, with the new French president, Hollande, to try and change the EU's arms embargo to all participants in the Syrian civil war. And obviously, Cameron does want to go ahead with the military strikes in response to Obama's red line over chemical weapons, and he loses that vote in the House of Commons, and that brings that to an end. But it's not like that there's a set of reflections on what had happened in Libya and say, well, what will actually be the consequences? Is it possible for Western states to use their military power and the rebels on the ground in Syria to remove Assad. That doesn't seem a hard question that is being asked. Yeah, and then what do you what do you do once you've once you've intervened? Can you stop? Because the lesson with with Libya is that you you yeah. you can't just stop. You have to sort of the next challenge presents itself, and the same logic that in, that made you intervene in the first place may, means that you should intervene again and again and again. And I, I don't know whether he, he learns any of these lessons here. I mean, you always struck with Cameron by a remarkable self-assurance and confidence. And it, right from the beginning, it's very clear that he is very smart, very genuinely very smart, able guy, very fluent, able to understand something quite quickly and come up with conclusions very quickly. Just that the conclusions don't match the self-assurance. You know, you see this with Afghanistan where he comes in and he just declares that we need a deadline to get out of Afghanistan. So he says, I don't accept that we either pull out now and that it's a failure or that we stay in forever. I've got a third way that will meet all of our ambitions and it's to set a deadline. And he's warned, you know, look, well, this comes with a very clear and obvious problem that the Taliban will see that you're going to pull out at a certain time and just wait it out and then come and take charge once you've gone. And of course, that is what happens. But Cameron is clear. And I think you can't separate the Afghan policy decision that he makes from austerity because it's also about saving money. You know, and he's very clear about that from the start. And and the other thing is by because the deadline for pulling out of Afghanistan became December like 2014. Election, obviously, yeah. the context. But what was also going on in 2014 was Obama now really upping the pressure on the European members of NATO to spend 2% yes. um, of GDP on defence. And Cameron hosts that NATO summit in Wales, in which he sort of presents his government as the one European government who's pushing this on everybody else. But in then the run-up to the 2015 election, it's pretty clear that Britain's in considerable difficulty in terms of <laughs> yeah. meeting that. And at one point, I think Cameron starts asking questions about whether we can use the spending of the intelligence agencies to count as defence expenditure <laughs> yeah. to try to get it pushed over the line. And so in terms of the election campaign itself, it's definitely on the more austerity is going to defence position. But then within a few months after the election, he's reversed course. And it's clear that Obama's put enormous pressure yeah. on. And again, it's the same thing. It's sort of like he's wanting to talk the talk of having this quite interventionist, liberal interventionist policy where the Middle East is concerned, but somehow thinking that that means that the Americans will do the real heavy lifting. And yet at the very same time, in late 2014, he is in another area, or at least Philip Allen, the foreign secretary, is responding to Obama's attempted 
pivot to Asia away from the Middle East. Now we know, as we talked about when we we're talking about Obama, that's hardly successful. Yeah. But that is being registered in London under Cameron because they're saying, okay, actually we need to have a naval base in Bahrain, yeah. which is announced. So it's effectively a return to east of Suez. It's a, quite a big since, moment that we don't talk about. Yeah, enough. since the so that so the retreat from Eastern Syria has been completed by like 1971. There is a limited ongoing presence in the Persian Gulf from 1979, but it is quite limited. But this is talking about establishing a new British naval base, like in Bahrain, and you can see where that comes from. It's like saying the Americans are going to be more detached from the Middle East in the age both of shale, but also turning to. China, but then how does that fit with the idea that they're going to be cutting defence yeah. expenditure, or how does it fit with the idea that you don't need to spend more money on the navy if we're now going back to the idea that we might have to do some exercise, some naval power ourselves to protect oil security in the Middle East? It's a kind of cakeism, isn't it? In a, in a, in a way, it's, it's this sense of he, he's he's effectively a sort of patriotic Eurosceptic Tory. He wants to be important and you know, do great things in the world stage and be involved uh, when there is a conflict. He doesn't want to just leave it, ignore it. He, he's quite dismissive of Merkel in the book when of her attitude to the Arab Spring, in which he just says, oh, the Germans kind of withdrew and the French were too slow. And I was, I was excellent. I was on the front foot and I was making these moral decisions. So he doesn't want to pull back, but he doesn't want to then pay for it. And then he also seems to want to ride on the coattails of the Americans. And look, perhaps all British prime ministers want to do that. But he's not really seeing where the wind is blowing in terms of the Americans pivoting to Asia and what that is actually going to mean. Because he makes this decision to really deepen down on the relationship with the Chinese. I mean, obviously, Europe is his defining legacy and Brexit. And we'll spend a bit of time talking about that later. But China, this is an extraordinary moment in 2015. His, what is it called? The golden age of relations. Xi comes over. We are going to be China's best friend in Europe. And of all of the relationships that he built, this is the most sort of obviously flawed. And it's going to cause him problems as foreign secretary because he carried on that relationship after leaving number 10. Yeah, I think... It's really important to see here that everything that has unraveled really on the UK-China relationship, the origins of that are already there when by the time that Cameron's left office. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in a couple of different podcasts, but I think the crucial watershed moment, because it changes so much in Washington, is made in China 2025 yeah. announcement in May of 2015. And from that point on, it's clear that there is going to be not just trade competition between the US and China that's going to have a very strong geopolitical component to it. But that's into the high-tech security defense mm. area and into the energy transition, I would say, as well. So the idea from that point on that, that Britain can just carry on treating China as a commercial partner. It, and you can see the way in which Merkel ran into exactly like the same difficulty, yeah. persisted with it for much longer. But there can be no going back to the way that the British-China relationship had been under Cameron before Made in China 2025 changed um, so much. So he, he can't be continuity Cameron where the China question is concerned because the whole underpinning of it from his point of view that was there between 2010-15 is gone. Yeah, if, even if we hadn't left the European Union, David Cameron was still prime minister. He'd won some 
great, you know, Harold Wilson-style victory in that referendum in 2016, he would still be having to rein in his China policy. He would have run into the Huawei question just as much as Boris Johnson did. I think that the nuclear power question, which Theresa May had to deal with very early on in her premiership, we talked about this as um, well, he would have come under the same pressure of saying, is it possible really Mm. for it to be secure, for China to be so involved in Britain's nuclear power uh, industry in a context in which relations between Washington and Beijing were deteriorating as much as they would, particularly after Trump became president. None of that would have changed just because David Cameron thought that it would be good for Britain to have a better commercial relationship with China. (laughs) Yeah, on on that, we should turn to Israel, as we mentioned after the break, and back to what David Cameron has learned from his time as Prime Minister and what he's going to bring to the table as Foreign Secretary after the break. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Prime Minister asked me to do this job, and it's a time where we have some daunting challenges as a country. The conflict in the Middle East, the war in Ukraine. Welcome back. So we finished the first half there talking about David Cameron's time as Prime Minister. And we're going to talk about what is in his intray now that he's Foreign Secretary under in completely different circumstances. And the first thing I think, obviously, we need to talk about Helen is his position on Gaza. I think he's come out, he's already followed the government line, obviously, strong, strongly supporting Israel. But actually, his position on this, like many other things, is not quite as straightforward. And he's not being quite so clear on this issue going back to 2006, 2006, and his his time uh, as the uh, leader of the opposition. So what was his position on the situation in Lebanon then? I think we should remember, first of all, that this is the point when Tony Blair was prime minister, yeah, uh, and was under huge pressure within the parliamentary party for his unequivocal support of Israel after the invasion of southern Lebanon that summer. And that played a very significant part in Blair having to set a date for him exiting the the premiership. And if you look at what position Cameron took as leader of the opposition at the time, it was to join in the criticism of Blair and to make part of that criticism of, of Israel. So he said that Israel's actions were disproportionate mm. and they were causing an unnecessary loss of civilian life. And there's no doubt that made him quite unpopular in sections of the Conservative Party that wanted a much more forthright line of support from Cameron for Israel. If you then look at what happened in the first months when he became Prime Minister in 2010, 
He said, as you've already mentioned on that trip to Turkey, that Gaza could not be allowed to remain, in his words, a prison camp. He said something similar in Parliament, describing Gaza as a giant open prison, that he opposed Israel's blockade. What's interesting, though, is by the time we get to 2014, which is the prior to what's happening now, the last really significant Israel-Hamas conflict over Gaza when Israel engaged in several weeks of, of bombing in Gaza, he's much more clearly supportive of the Israeli government. Not that there's no lines being drawn. Mm. He, he certainly wants to say that direct attacks on civilians are unacceptable mm. and illegal. But when there's significant pressure within his cabinet from the Liberal Democrat side of it, and one of his own cabinet ministers resigns, wanting to both describe Israel's, and, and, and what I mean by that, the opposition to Cameron within his cabinet want Israel's actions described as disproportionate. Mm -hmm. So that language that he'd used back in 2006, but also they want an arms embargo to Israel so long as the bombing continues. Then he very much defends a, a strong support for uh, Israel through that. But I think one of the things that's interesting here is the other politics around it, both within the Conservative Party and then Labour's position. Because within the Conservative Party, you have Boris Johnson, yeah. who was mayor of London in, in, in 2014. And he attacks Cameron really quite explicitly. It's a very big contrast to the position he's taking now. So he said, this is Johnson back in 2014, I believe in a two-state solution. I cannot for the life of me see how this meaning the Israeli bombing, helps us get there. I think that it is disproportionate. I think it is ugly and it is tragic and I don't think it would do us any good in the in the long run. And Cameron yeah. faces from the opposition then, from, from Ed Miliband as leader of the Labour Party, quite sustained criticism over what Miliband presents as his unequivocal support. I mean, is there a single figure who comes out of this looking good? You know, Cameron in his early years seems to be to the left of where Keir Starmer is today. He then becomes prime minister and he changes tack. Boris Johnson, of course, is all over the place, trying to use any situation for his own advantage. But I mean, that's effectively what David Cameron was doing back to Tony to Tony Blair in two thousand and in two thousand and six. You know, Ed Miliband, you know, all over the place. Only a year earlier on the Syria situation as well. I think <laughs> comes across playing politics there very clearly. I mean, it all is pretty dispiriting stuff looking back over this period of, of British politics on this particular issue. I think that there's no doubt that it's getting caught up in a lot of partisan politics, both between the parties and within the parties. And it's interesting now, though, that there is not that line to be drawn between the prime minister mm. and the leader of the opposition. That may mean that the leader of the opposition... Keir Starmer has got significant part problems, issues around that in, with his own parliamentary party. But if you think about it in these terms, there is more leadership consensus yes. over this issue for support for Israel than there was either in 2006 or in 2014. And I think that in terms of like where Cameron is, is that there isn't going to be a division between him and, and Rishi Sunak over this question, I think it would be inconceivable that he would have been asked to have been foreign secretary if there was space to be drawn between them. But that isn't to say that Cameron, I think, is going to be able to do very much here as foreign secretary that isn't essentially being circumscribed by what the position in Washington yeah. is. Yeah. 
because clearly, for as we've talked about before, for Joe Biden, given the politics of the Democratic Party, particularly the progressive wing of the Democratic um, Party, he does have a domestic political issue around this in the way I'm not really convinced that the British Conservative government quite does. No, and also Cameron doesn't have the sort of track record of solid support for Israel that would allow him to be the kind of candid friend who said, look, you've seen my record. It's unblemished in terms of your support to protect yourself. Therefore, I say, in all honesty, I think you're going too far or whatever Whatever mm. it is. He, he doesn't really have the space to do that. I think he earned quite a lot, though, of credibility within the Israeli government over the steadfastness, as they saw it, of the support in 2014. All right, when it mattered. But when he was a leader of the opposition, mm. it was wobbly. But I guess, that, you know, that's just that's just playing politics. I mean, because Joe Biden is, I mean, this is slightly separate, but Joe Biden has, that's what he's tried to do, isn't it? He's tried to say, I'm absolutely unequivocal. And by all accounts, that has really meant a lot in Israel, from, from my understanding. It is. But also, though, Biden is clearly trying to set parameters for the Israeli government yeah. as well. And basically has said that there has to be a strategic objective yeah. to what they're trying to do in Gaza yeah. and that it would seem that that did have well it had some at least impact in terms of the length of time it took the Israelis to begin the ground intervention you could say I would say I think it's not clear it's had impact yet in terms of the Israeli government being able to articulate any kind of strategic objective for what they're trying to do in Gaza but in terms of Cameron I think that that's going to be between Israel and, and, and the Biden administration, it's very difficult to see what role the British government is going to play in that. I think the one where we might say there's perhaps more where what he decides to do might have some consequence, albeit still perhaps limited, is the question of Ukraine. Because from the American point of view, although the Americans are still circumscribing the limits of support for the Ukrainian government, they clearly would also like the Europeans to do more in terms of engagement here. But this is also then going to be limited by Cameron's record as prime minister, you know, because they want the Europeans to do more, mm. in, you know, including us, all of Europe to do more. And that requires relationships between Britain, France, Germany, obviously in particular, but increasingly Poland, um, Italy, other countries with a, a military might who are supportive of the Ukrainian government. I mean, it, it's very obvious, perhaps it's slightly trite to say that, you know, what, what is Cameron going to be able to achieve in terms of building a united European message or front or support for Ukraine? I mean, it, it, it he starts from a very difficult position. I mean, I think his first trip was to Ukraine to meet Zelensky. You know, he carried on the British line saying that, you know, Boris, John, Boris Johnson and I had difficulties in the past but I thought what he did in Ukraine was his finest moment. I think that's what he said to Zelensky. There's a, a kind of classic Cameron smoothness to the operation there. But what can he actually achieve? I mean, the the big worry for Ukraine is post-2024. So it's like, you know, 2025 and onwards. It looks very unlikely that David Cameron is going to be Foreign Secretary in 2025, Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister. So what what is his great you know, value to Zelensky, I mean, support for the next year. I think it might be the other way around. I think it might be a question uh, of being somebody potentially who can carry the message from Washington about where the limits of support for Ukraine 
lie and act as somebody i mean maybe this isn't making it too much about cameron but the question for the european governments collectively and even though britain's outside the european union is still gonna have to face this is the kind of financial support that yeah. a post-war ukraine um will need i do think that we should just bring in it if we go back to his premiership here on Ukraine, he just wasn't really interested. I mean, there's another moment that I think is quite revealing in 2014. Um, so this is after Russia's annexation of Crimea, in which Cameron talks some very tough language, probably as tough as anybody, but there's no meaningful sanctions, certainly in terms of short-term energy sanctions against Russia um, as a result of it. Obviously, Britain's not one of the larger countries in terms of consuming Russian oil and gas at the time. But when the civil war, if we can call it that, begins in the Donbass with the secessionist movements there, both Cameron and Obama leave trying to deal with that problem to France and Germany. Yep. So these accords that are called the Minsk Accords, which were a set of agreements between France, Germany, Ukraine and Russia about a peace settlement effectively for Donbass, which was never entered. Then Cameron's very detached from that. As I recall, Nick Clegg is very was very critical about Cameron's disengagement and saw that as part of his not being willing to act constructively within the European Union at the time over big questions. I think that's legitimate. I think there's no way Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair would stay out of that style of negotiation, just completely leave it. But the, I think the counter argument to that would be that Obama was staying out of it. So I think that you can't quite separate out what Cameron's doing there from what Obama's doing there. I mean, it, that both of them, that the United States and Britain should both detach from that. Yeah. Is, I think, actually the striking aspect of the, of the Minsk story but what i think it means for where we are now is that even leaving aside brexit the trying to work with the french and the german governments yeah. about ukraine is complicated well, i mean what's the view then that, that, that essentially that was this kind of appeasement style weak negotiation by germany and france doomed to fail they were never going to get anything from the russians and and actually britain has been Prove right, Cameron should have, you know, Cameron was right to have stayed out. Well, this is also now complicated by the fact that Merkel has effectively said it was just like buying time, that it was all a bit fake. So <laughs> that is the appeasement argument. I think <laughs> that the complication of like, well, she's kind of trying to say is it was always just buying time for Ukraine to rearm. Oh, yeah, itself. but that's the kind of revisionist argument about appeasement now, yeah, isn't see, it? Well, yeah. the, you know, giving it was the right policy because it gave us time. I mean, the thing is, if, it was ne if she was right, and I'm not sure she is right, that it never was serious, then Cameron could say, well, why would I spend time on something that wasn't really serious? It was just window dressing. Yeah, it feels a, a, a weak argument mm. from Cameron's side to me. You know, if, if, the, if, if the Americans are stepping back, that surely presents Britain with an opportunity to be a more important player in something that is separate to EU membership. This is about European policy. And again, like thinking back to his, his other uh, foreign policy decisions, uh, wanting to be involved, uh, even if the Americans are pulling back in, say, Libya, pushing the Americans in Syria, getting this base in Bahrain. You know, this is all about projecting British power and being involved. And here is a war on the European continent 
and the the principal sort of diplomatic route to try and end it or to delay it or whatever, we're not there. And he has just pulled back. It just seems an extraordinary moment in his premiership to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's any way of of, of getting around the fact that it's an act of disengagement. Yeah, and I think the question then now is that can he, or perhaps put more precisely, can a government with him as foreign secretary get past the legacy of his involvement in Brexit Yeah, to try and strengthen the security aspect of relations between the United Kingdom and the European Union and France and, and Germany in particular? And I do think there's one thing we perhaps should have brought out earlier that is interesting is, is how much in as prime minister in the early years, he bet on the French relationship, particularly I would say when Sarkozy was French president. So up to 2012, because one of the things that went with defense being part of fiscal austerity was also this new 50 year agreement with France. I think it was 50 years, mm-hmm. the, the Lancaster house, Accords that was basically saying that the bilateral security relationship with France was absolutely central yeah. to British defence, and this was was in a context in which the France under Sarkozy, again in response, I would say to the two thousand and eight shock, had put France back under the unified military command within NATO, and he was willing to act with Sarkozy about Libya. He is pressing on Syria with Holland, particularly to change EU policy on on the arms embargo in 2013. The point where it comes crashing down, I think, is when he backs down on military intervention in Syria after losing that first vote in the House of Commons. And Holland, I think, feels very betrayed by that because France obviously has a succession of terrorist attacks in 2015. France ends up doing some of its own military action in a... think both Syria and Iraq against um, ISIS and Cameron's pulled back and Cameron only really engages with the ISIS issue when he can be back on side with the Americans. Yeah, the French socialists are far more hawkish on Syria than the British Conservatives. But only after Cameron's lost his vote. I think that's the crucial thing. I think that's where it's interesting because Cameron basically clocks that moment as saying that British public opinion will not tolerate more military intervention yeah. in the Middle East. He didn't fight for it at all, though, because no. it was just the first vote. It was vote, just the first it? vote. He could have carried on, and he, and, he, and he decided not to. He was obviously very angry that night. I remember like watching it like as it was happening, and you could see um, his um, anger. But it basically, if you like, drew a line in the sand against the first years of his foreign policy. But I think it also just really changed the relationship with the French. Yeah. And then if you look at what happened in terms of the EU negotiations in terms of those negotiations, I mean by that prior to the referendum, it was all about influencing Merkel. Yeah, It was like the French weren't part of it, which I think was also really quite problematic because Hollande then had no interest whatsoever in encouraging Merkel to make any concessions. Yeah, he admits this in the book as well that that he had he invested. Well, no, you know, he doesn't say I invested too much in Merkel. He says I didn't pursue it enough. Like I didn't keep going. So I think he's there's still this idea that if he'd if he'd deepened it, if he'd done more with her, that maybe she would have 
come to his rescue, you know, on a white horse towards the end in the way that she didn't. I mean, that just seems to me to be the wrong conclusion. But again, just thinking about the, the French situation, it seems remarkably similar to all those other moments in his premiership where he's, you, you talked about him drawing a line. He, he seems to be very good at drawing lines and saying, right, this is a defining moment. And, you know, I've made a, I've drawn the, the obvious conclusion to this crisis. And then that obvious conclusion turns out to be wrong. You know, so I think we should maybe come back to the Anglo-French sort of military relationship in a future episode, because I'm not entirely sure where it is now, because it blew up over, over, AUKUS. over AUKUS, which was, you know, Boris Johnson's great sort of foreign policy achievement in a way that I think will outlast him. And, and, and it's something that David Cameron is now inherited. And that is a strategic choice to go with the Australians and the Americans to develop military technology by screwing over the French. You know, if they were, uh, I don't think we've seen the French as furious about that. Now, they sort of were quite dismissive of the UK and they, they thought it was just a, you know, it was the Australians who had betrayed them and the Americans can never be trusted anyway. But it was, I think they they directed their fire at the of the Australians, but there has to be some blowback into Britain's relationship. I mean, is it possible to have this close relationship on matters, even nuclear matters, between the British and the French, if they are effectively excluded from AUKUS, which is a, a completely different alliance? I think the other question is what Cameron's attitude now towards the Turkey question is. Because obviously we're talking about Macron being president of France and Macron in that infamous interview he gave to The Economist when he talked about the brain death of NATO, he was talking about the Turkey yeah. question. He was effectively saying it doesn't make any sense for Turkey to be a NATO member. And there was Cameron through most of his premiership pushing the Turkey not only indispensable in NATO, an argument which you, I think, could say has been supported by the Ukraine war. Yeah. But Cameron having been an enthusiastic proponent of Turkey being in the in the European Union. And there's obviously, and I think we've talked about this in other contexts, significant or considerable potential for tension around Turkey in the East Mediterranean. There's also the fact that the Turkey question runs into the Israel question. Erdogan's been astonishingly critical of uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. Turkey is the, if you like, the one clear, I would say, energy vulnerability that Israel has in the new, in the energy world because the oil that Israel imports from Azerbaijan comes from a pipeline in Turkey. And the question then of what that means in terms of how much commonality there can be between the British government and the French government in particular on these multiple points of tension in the world yeah. I think is, is is considerable because obviously the AUKUS question runs into the China question because that's the point of that and and, <laughs> yes. and Macron wants to position France as being able to make its own judgment essentially on how confrontational with China yeah in be. a sense you could imagine it the, the, there is a strategic rationale to sort of inviting the French into AUKUS you know, to somehow yeah. bind bind the whole thing together. But as you were talking there, Helen, I mean, what strikes me is that what Cameron's decisions as prime minister in a way have no bearing now on the world that exists, on almost any of them. So he's, what he tried to do on Europe, on China, on Turkey, perhaps what he said about Israel, but as we've 
discussed. That was quite, you know, wobbly over the times. Libya, the Arab Spring, you know, all of that is just kind of gone. You know, he has to draw a line under it and move on and make a whole new set of conclusions about the, the world that exists today. And, you know, I think if, if we know one thing about Cameron is he, he'll be quite good at that. He'll be quite nonchalant and just sort of saying, right, that's the old world. This is the new world. I'm a smart guy. I can make the decisions about what's in Britain's interest when it comes to all of these relationships. And he'll just draw new conclusions. It does make you wonder, well, what is the point of this appointment? And coming all the way back to the start in a way, it makes you think it's just domestic politics, isn't it? It's nothing to do with how David Cameron sees the world or his legacy or why it would be he's got some great insight into one particular crisis or another that some other conservative candidate could have had, whether it's in Ukraine or in Gaza. This could have, you know, any, any conservative MP pretty much could have pursued the same policy with a few, you know, with a few exceptions on the back benches. So what, what is he bringing to the table? I, I just don't know. And it just seems like, again, it's like a very short term appointment to try and help a sort of domestic political crisis that we'll sort of look back on in a few years and think, oh, that was an odd an odd period of time didn't make much difference. I don't think it can make any difference like whatsoever. And I think that the appointment only makes sense really in terms of the domestic politics of the Conservative Party and the the deep strife within it and Sunak's own positioning in uh, relation to that. I think though what is interesting is the fact of, as you said, Tom, just how removed this present geopolitical world is from the one in which Cameron became prime minister. And if you then said, well, have the British government, and I now don't really mean in terms of the personnel being prime minister or the person being prime minister, and I'm sure it's going to make much difference, to be honest, when if and when Labour replace um, the Conservative government, have the British government got to grips with this new geopolitical world and understand how they're trying to position Britain in relationship to it? I think the answer is they haven't. No, no, I don't Um, think anybody has. And that the legacy, though, of the decisions that were made in the the Cameron um, period, some of them, I think, still are there. I mean, the obvious one is is Brexit, obviously. But... It is also the case, I think, that the positioning of the naval base uh, in Bahrain, the general greater emphasis on the the Gulf kingdoms, that that has kind of a bit outlasted the Cameron premiership. And that's something we just almost and, didn't talk about yeah, at the time. And that in, that in a world in which the problems of the Middle East around in the Middle East and around the Middle East are actually intensifying that a lot of British foreign policy is going to have to be around working out what that means, what that means for, for that, what that means for Britain. It's, it's amazing to just reflect on that and to reflect on this strange life and career of David Cameron. You know, one of the things that jumps out when you read his biography or his autobiography is that he wasn't really interested in foreign policy when he was younger. It was Europe and Thatcherism and in particular economics. And he was he became the advisor in the in the Treasury. 
And I think when he first went to be a Conservative MP, he was asked what he wanted to be. And he said he wanted to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. And you think how life would have been different if David Cameron had been Chancellor and not oh, yeah, Prime Minister. I'm not Minister. sure that it would have been really, though, because I think a lot of it is just a reflection of both the British government's difficulties through the, the turbulence of the last decade and a half and the Conservative Party's difficulties with that turbulence. And you, you could have changed like Osborne and Cameron between the Prime Minister and Chancellor. Yeah. I think Osborne would have made a different decision on the, the Brexit referendum, but I'm not sure that much else would have really would else really be different. Now you could say that's such a big thing it would have changed many other things. But I still think that obviously most clearly with China that the sense in which that coalition government's foreign policy objectives were overwhelmed by a geopolitical world that they didn't understand yeah, as it was changing would still absolutely be the case. Yeah. And on that note, Helen, we should say thank you to everyone for listening. Again, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, like and share it with your friends and family. See you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.